Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's May 4th, 2022. It seems for a moment, at least, for better or worse, we've forgotten about the Ukraine. Headlines are full of uh, commentary, concerns, promises, analysis of abortion rights. And I think what this has done in America is raise that that age-old specter of state rights here in California. Uh, more and more talk about California maintaining the rights of abortion, whatever happens um, federally. And the reverse is true in California. Lots of pieces about how, Calif- uh, not California, sorry, Texas, how Texas's current restrictive abortion law previews a post-Roe America. So lots of talk about abortion, uh, the illegality of abortion in Texas, whether or not the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. Um, Texas, of course, is notoriously independent, uh, if that's the right word, in terms of policy. Uh, interesting headline today about why, on the Hill about why Texas cannot declare an invasion at the border. Uh, but Texas is already behaving independently in some ways as a state in terms of foreign powers. Uh, Mexico's uh, foreign minister today accuses uh, the Texan governor of extortion in terms of um, Texan, uh, the Texas governor's policy when it comes to border inspections of Texan trucks. We are talking, as you can guess, Texas today, the early history of Texas, and what it means perhaps to the contemporary nature of the state of Texas with a very distinguished scholar of Texas, Sam W. Haynes. He has a brand new book out today, Unsettled Land from Revolution to Republic, The Struggle for Texas. And uh, Sam is joining us from Dallas, Texas. Sam, uh, congratulations on the book. It's always nice to see a new book on Texas. Thank Um, you, Andrew. Is this a, a revisionist reading of the history? What news are you making with this history of Texas? Of course, there have been many books published about Texas. What are you saying that hasn't right. been said before? Well, I would say it's probably not just not so much a rev- revisionist history as it is uh, an attempt to start all over again. Um, for about 100 years, the story... In good, of- uh, in good Texan fashion, Sam. I'm, I beg your pardon? in good Texan fashion. Right. Well, for about 100 years, the story has been told again and again. Uh, well, ad nauseum, I suppose. Um, it's the period that I study, the 1830s and the 1840s, uh, has really been presented as this story of a few white alpha males fighting against the Mexican army. And um, in fact, Texas is a, a very ethnically diverse place, Um, one of the most uh, diverse places in North America, in fact. And so I wanted to step back, take a a broad view, use a wide lens to look at Texas in all of its complexity and really take the argument or take the focus away from these uh, 
rather famous iconic figures like Sam Houston and Davy Crockett and William Barrett Travis and so on. Um, this is a, um, a fascinating place in the 1820s and the 1830s. Um, just to give you some a little background, um, there is an indigenous population here, of course, uh, but most Native Americans had only just arrived. Some had come in the 1700s, uh, groups that the Spanish refer to as the Indios Barbaros, um, the nomadic tribes like the Comanches and the Apaches and the Tonkawas. Uh, and then many Native American refugees from the United States uh, had come in in the 1820s and 30s, the Cherokees, the Choctaws, the Shawnees and the Delawares, and they had come from all over the United States. Some had come from uh, the, the Trans-Appalachian region like the Cherokees. Some came from the South. Some came from the Great Lakes region. And that's just the that's just the Native American population. There was a Spanish population here, of course, uh, settled in the 1700s, and Anglo Americans arrive in the 1820s, and they bring with them uh, peoples of African descent. So, it's a very complex mix of people, and I tried to um, really tell the story as if it had never been told before, because that traditional narrative that we know so well with the Alamo taking center stage uh, is really, I think, a, sto uh, a story for the 19th and 20th century. I think in the 21st century, we need an entirely new narrative with which to um, see and understand these events. We've actually, we had a, a show last year on the myth of the Alamo. I'm sure you're familiar with Brian Burrow. Uh, he, he's co-authored a, a book called um, Right. Get the Alamo, the rise and fall of an American myth. It actually became a political story in itself. It did. Your, your, your book is, in a sense, an extension of Forget the Alamo. You're suggesting it's not just the Alamo that's a myth, but the whole mythology of the foundation of Texas, of the Texan Republic. Is that fair? Well, I wouldn't say it's an extension of Forget the Alamo, because I think um, Brian's book does focus still on those Alamo defenders and um, tries to understand them, but in, in a, obviously in a, in a very sort of anti-heroic way. Uh, they, uh, the authors take the view that they were slaveholders and they were fighting to expand slavery. My view is somewhat different. Um, I'm not so much interested in those Alamo defenders. I'm interested in everybody in Texas and I'm interested in Native Americans and not just in terms of what they do with regard to the Texas Revolution, but trying to understand Native Americans uh, as um, uh, people who have really no stake in the contest between um, Texas or between uh, Anglo-Texas rebels in Mexico. Um, that's what I'm trying to do. I think we, for too long, we have focused on uh, the Alamo as this um, pivotal event uh, in Texas history. They are saying that, but they're still focused on those individuals. And so Sam Houston does figure prominently in my uh, in my book. There's no question about it. Uh, but Crockett and Travis and Bowie, uh, much less so. So just to come back to this histor historiographical point you're making, are you suggesting that the earlier histories or many of the traditional histories of 19th century Texas simply ignore Native Americans? They absolutely ignored them. 
and they ignored pretty much everybody else. I mean, I think there was a very famous historian in the early 20th century. His name was Eugene Barker, and he was not interested in Native Americans. He was not interested in African Americans. He wasn't really interested in uh, in, in women either. Um, he was focused entirely on the alpha white males who uh, um, fought to free Texas from Mexican rule. And that's the story that's been told over and over and over. And I think recently uh, there was a book in the 1990s called Duel of Eagles and Brian Burroughs' uh, book, Forget the Alamo, is followed pretty much in the same vein to take an anti-heroic view of those characters. Uh, but we're still hostage to a narrative that puts white men front and center. And so that's the story that the story that I want to tell is one in which it's just simply a more inclusive story. And it's not just a question of inserting people of color into that traditional narrative, because when you step back and you try to write the narrative again, as if you're writing it for the first time, then it becomes a totally different narrative altogether. And some of the people who figure prominently in that traditional narrative, like Stephen F. Austin, for example, who is the most successful Anglo-American colonizer, brings thousands of Anglo-Americans to Texas in the 1820s and the 1830s, aren't as important in my book as they would be in a traditional study. Uh, and one reason simply is because when Stephen F. Austin is bringing in Anglo-Americans, there are Native American leaders Cherokee chief in particular that I that I talk about called, uh, named Richard Fields, who's doing exactly the same thing, uh, but he's doing it before Austin, and he's doing it. Uh, he's bringing uh, Cherokees and, and other tribes in far greater numbers. Um, Sam, this is not just an academic argument, isn't it? I, I assume this issue is profoundly relevant to the current identity and politics of Texas itself today. Well, I, it's, there's certainly no doubt, I think, that if you read my book and you get a sense of how diverse this region is uh, in the 19th century, there are obviously echoes of what Texas will become. Texas is a, a, a very diverse place today. It has a Latino majority. Um, and in many ways, I think Anglo-Americans uh, are sort of fighting the same fight that they thought they were fighting in 1836. I mean, if you look at the Alamo today, I mean, one of the reasons why, forget the Alamo uh, rankled so many people was because the Alamo is seen by many Anglo-Americans as a sacred site. Mm. Uh, so again, when you say rankled people, you mean um, Burroughs' book, Forget the Alamo? Uh, yes, yes. Forget the Alamo rankled a number of people because the Alamo is seen as a sacred site. Um, and yet it sits in one of the largest uh, Mexican-American cities uh, in the United States. So in, in a sense, I suppose, uh, the, the siege of the Alamo in 1836 is now being uh, uh, replicated uh, in the 21st century. You have this sacred site sitting in a predominantly um, Mexican-American urban area. It's interesting, though. I, I don't want to make this a conversation about forget the Alamo, but it seems as if uh, Brian and, and his fellow authors have managed to offend both the left and the right, which is quite an achievement, which probably speaks to the the, the, cred the credibility of the book. But let's go back to the revolution. 
1836. Very briefly, um, uh, very briefly, uh, Sam, what's your reading? Because many of our viewers won't be familiar with what Texas was like in 1836. Paint the picture of what the situation was and who rebelled against who. Well, I think the traditional story of the Texas Revolution, a very simple one, it's a story of Anglo rebels fighting off Mexican hordes and ultimately triumphing uh, at the Battle of San Jacinto in April of 1836. Um, in fact, I, it's important to remember that the uh, struggle that uh, we call the Texas Revolution began as a Mexican story uh, involving Mexican Federalists fighting against a, um, a centralist government uh, in Mexico City. And I think the origins of that story are really, really important, but we've lost sight of it because we focused exclusively on what Anglo-Americans are doing. So my book introduces a number of characters that are um, either ignored, um, completely absent, or mentioned only very, very briefly, and who are very prominent Mexican Federalist leaders at the time. And their actions really do determine the actions of the centralist government in 1835. People like Lorenzo de Zavala, Jose Antonio Mejia, these are really important figures in this story, but we've lost sight of them because we're focused on people like Davy Crockett and William Barrett Travis. Right. Um, so, so basically what you're saying, Sam, is that the conventional American narrative, which fits into the overall view of America of itself, is this rebellion against colonial rule and so you 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 replace the the british with the mexicans and you have the narrative of the texan rebellion but what you're saying is that figures like um uh, jose antonio mexica uh, hernandez and uh uh manuel uh, lorenzo de zavala that these were uh power holders in Texas himself that were rebelling against the central authority of the Mexican government. Is that fair? Yes. Um, after this shift of power in 1834, a number of prominent Mexican Federalists fled the country and they were using New Orleans as a base of operations. Jose, Jose Antonio Mejia was in New Orleans when the revolution began and in fact led an expedition to uh, Tampico um, again, something that we don't think of when we think of the Texas Revolution. Why didn't why didn't these guys then ally themselves with the white rebels? Well, they did, uh, and that's the in many ways the sort of the uh, a, a poignant uh, part of this story. Jose Antonio Mejia and Zavala had been collaborating with Anglo Americans for years, um, more than any other Mexican officials. They were responsible for paving the way for Anglo American immigration. When the Mexican government tried to uh, crack down on Anglo-American immigration in 1830, uh, Mejia and Zavala worked to repeal that law so that Anglo-American immigration could continue. Both of them thought that um, immigration, Anglo-American immigration was good for, for Texas. It was also good for their own uh, economic interests because they had invested heavily in Texas lands. Um, and I don't think that they really anticipated this immigration would ultimately lead to independence. Now, Mejia, Mejia um, breaks with the 
Anglo rebels and will have nothing more to do with them after January of 1836. Uh, Lorenzo de Zavala actually agrees to serve as a, a vice president in the provisional government, and he will um, sign the Declaration of Independence, uh, thereby uh, making himself complicit in the dismemberment of his own country. But that was something that Mejia recoiled from and took no part in. I'm fascinated with the Republic of Texas, which existed between 1836 and 1846. How significant is this, uh, Sam, in political terms? Is it just a footnote or, or no. did something really happen over those 10 years when Texas was indeed a republic? No, it's it's terribly important. And in my book, I argue that if we're going to understand the revolution, we need to frame it differently. It doesn't end with a um, uh, um, on a triumphant note at San Jacinto. Uh, it continues long after into the Republic period. Um, we've framed the Texas Revolution as a struggle involving Anglos and Mexicos, Mexicans. And therefore, the revolt, as far as we're concerned, ends at San Jacinto. But and San Jacinto was 1836, right? This was in the... April 21st, 1836. Right. But what I argue is, if we really want to see it as a revolution, um, it needs to be seen as more than just simply another part in the process of Anglo-American expansion. Historians have wrestled with whether or not it's a revolution at all. And I think if all it is, is another chapter in that process of what we sometimes refer to as manifest destiny, then it probably isn't a revolution. But it is a revolution in the sense that Mexico, which is a multiracial society, not a colorblind society by any means, but a multiracial society, when that rule comes to an end, uh, what follows is the Republic of Texas, which is, a, which is um, defiantly and unapologetically uh, committed to the ideology of white rule. So that's the revolution. And so most, if not all, books on the Texas Revolution end in April of 1836. I think you need to carry that sto story forward to see what happens as um, whites in the Texas government uh, expel Indians, um, marginalize Mexicans, and tighten their grip on the enslaved. It's funny, there's a the 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 equivalence i think is in eastern europe uh, in terms of the breakup of the ottoman empire and the greek and serbian and other nation states that were built on ethnic identity that replaced the ottomans you're suggesting that the multicultural multi-ethnic nature of mexico is something that we forget about and ignore was there something inevitable sam and i know that's a dangerous word to use with historians about Texas being incorporated into the United States? Is it conceivable that Texas could have remained a republic and become an independent country? It's conceivable. Um, it probably wasn't likely, but it was certainly something that many people considered. I think in the 19th century, uh, in the first half of the 19th century anyway, um, um, Anglo-Americans were accustomed to um, thinking of the United States as a place of very, very fluid boundaries. And certainly the country was expanding westward all the time. And many people hoped that it would absorb Texas after the Texas Revolution. But it wasn't necessarily a, a, a done deal by any means. 
And as late as the mid 19th century, uh, you find major American politicians thinking in terms of a, an American Republic, which is not necessarily a transcontinental empire, but which shares the continent, continent with several other Anglo-American republics. Uh, that doesn't happen um, because Texas is annexed uh, in 1845, but it is very, very controversial and it could very easily have gone the other way because of the slavery issue. Now, once the slavery issue had been resolved, then I think the absorption of Texas probably would have, I think it's fair to say the, it would have been inevitable at that point. But when Texas, during that 10 year period that Texas is a Republic, the slavery issue in the United States becomes more and more controversial and sort of reaches a, a, a critical point where it's the third rail of American politics. And it was by no means clear in uh, when Texas uh, is submitted to, um, uh, submits to annexation uh, by means of a treaty in 1844 uh, that there is public support for that. So the treaty is defeated in 1844. The country is finally annexed only by means of a joint resolution, which uh, allows the, um, the decision to bring Texas into the union to pass by a simple majority of both houses. Um, with a uh, the ratification as a treaty, the ratification of a treaty annexing Texas simply wasn't enough support for that uh, in the mid 1840s. Sam, um, had uh, an independent Texas embraced the more multicultural identity, in contrast with the sort of the heroic white settler culture that that you critique. Is it more conceivable that, te uh, that Texas would have become an independent state? In contrast, perhaps more progressive, more forward-thinking, more tolerant than the United States well, of America that was emerging in the middle of the 19th century? Okay, the, the simple answer is no, uh, because it was, in fact, far less tolerant uh, than the United States. Um, in many ways, the, uh, the Texas Republic was sort of like Jacksonian America on steroids. Uh, it was, um, it took a, a much harsher view of Native Americans, took a much harsher view toward uh, free people of color. Um, elsewhere in the United States, there was, uh, you, there, there were no Mexicans, of course, um, but Mexicans fled by the thousands uh, in the 1830s and the 1840s. Um, and so the, um, the racial climate in the Lone Star Republic is um, far, uh, far worse than it is in the United States. At least in the United States, there are people who are standing up and opposing Indian removal. And at least in the United States, uh, there, are, there is an anti-slavery lobby, which is becoming more and more vocal throughout this period. There is no such thing as an anti-slavery lobby in Texas. There is no one standing up against Indian removal with the sole exception, interestingly enough, of Sam Houston. But he really is um, a voice in the wilderness. Um, there is no one else. Uh, his, uh, even his friends refuse to support him when he opposes Indian removal. Very briefly and simply, uh, Sam, explain how the, the slavery issue played out in Texas and why Texas was so pivotal in terms of the Civil War. Okay. Well, 
the timing was was poor, I think. Uh, when Texas wins its independence, <clears throat> it wins its independence in 1836, um, and immediately applies for um, uh, annexation to the United States. And it looked like that might happen. <clears throat> there was a very small anti-slavery lobby uh, led by John Quincy Adams. They did not have a lot of public support, but through various political means, such as the use of the filibuster, uh, Adams made this a hot button issue, so much so that um, both Democrat and Whig administrations refused to touch it until the mid 1840s. What made them willing to sort of um, touch this third rail of American politics was because it looked for a time as if Great Britain was going to um, offer Texas, the Lone Star Republic, all kinds of trade guarantees and commercial treaties, which would make it, for all intents and purposes, a satellite of Great Britain. So it was really Anglophobia, uh, which forced the United States to accept annexation, even though this was now becoming increasingly unpopular in many parts of the country. Um, this was a deliberate strategy on the part of the, uh, the Houston administration to play upon Anglophobia, the fears of, of, the fears of Great Britain. Um, in the hopes that that fear would trump the uh, the fear of of roiling the uh, the slavery debate in the United States, you mentioned uh, earlier Richard Fields, uh, a one eighth Cherokee uh, diplomatic chief of his tribe in Texas. You 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 make um, in the, uh, the the Cherokees and and, uh, and Fields one of the important players in your narrative. You also write about Buffalo Hump. Why have historians left this out? And what are you saying that hasn't been said before about the indigenous peoples of Texas? Well, I, so you've referred to two people that I uh, discuss in the book. One is a Native American refugee, uh, Richard Fields, um, who comes from uh, Tennessee. Uh, in the 18 teens, uh, actually to U.S. Indian ter territory in the teens, and then he drifts down to Texas in the early 20s. And then a Comanche war chief, um, Buffalo Hump, uh, who rises to power in the 1830s and the 1840s. <clears throat> Both of them, I think, have been, certainly Richard Fields has been completely ignored. The I One of the points that I make in the book, and I, the, I devote the first three or four chapters to the Cherokee experience in Texas in the 1820s, simply because it has been ignored so much. When we think about the um, Texas in immediately after the War of Independence, uh, Mexico's War of Independence from Spain, uh, we think about Stephen of Austin coming and establishing his colony. But as I said earlier, Richard Fields is doing exactly the same thing, bringing in far more Native American refugees than, than Austin is. That story has never really been told adequately, in, in my opinion. Now, the, the, uh, the wars against the Comanches, I think, have uh, received a great deal more scrutiny. But I think for some reason, uh, historians love to sort of compartmentalize very complex series of events. And we tell the Texas Revolution as a story between Anglos and Mexicans, and we tell the story, be, the, the Indian Wars, between Anglos and Comanches, say, 
um, in the 1830s and the 1840s as a very different story. Um, but they are really joined at the hip. And I'll give you a good example. One of the most famous Comanche raids takes place in uh, June of um, 1836. Uh, it's the attack on Fort Parker, where Cynthia Ann Parker is taken as a young girl. Uh, she's later, more than two decades later, um, uh, recovered by um, uh, some Texas Rangers. If you've ever seen the, the movie The Searchers, it's loosely based on that story. It's a very famous episode in the Indian Wars, um, the, the wars between Anglo-Texans and Comanches. Uh, this is six weeks after the Battle of San Jacinto, however. And one of the points that I want to make in the book is that Comanche raiding activity in 1835 and 1836 uh, actually increased during the revolution. Comanches knew the struggle between Anglos and Mexicans was going on, and they took advantage of it, as did other tribes. And that story needs to be told too. But because it's such a complicated story, and because it's one of with so many moving parts, it's sort of been compartmentalized. And we have Texas Revolution with sort of this adversarial relationship between Anglo rebels and the Mexican government, and another struggle which we tell in other books, and that is the struggle between Anglo-Texans and um, uh, native tribes like the Comanches. They all, um, need seen, they all need to be seen as a part of the same process. Sam, you mentioned the kidnapping of a young woman. You also introduce more women into your narrative. One of the people you deal with is a wonderfully named Marianne Adams Maverick. I'm not sure if the, the word Maverick comes from that, but it does. Uh, it brings to mind, of course, the ultimate 20th century Texan Maverick, um, Anne Richards, who governed the state. What about the role of women? Again, I mean, I know that that's a, a, a rather general question, but what what did women like Maverick, what role did they play, which most historians seems to have ignored? Well, um, to begin, let me say that um, Mary Maverick uh, was not really a Maverick in the Ann Richards vein. She was a very conventional woman. Uh, and she, I think all of the evidence suggests that she did pretty much what her husband wanted her to do. Um, she was uh, from Alabama. She moves to the West Texas frontier, which is San Antonio, uh, immediately after the Texas Revolution. She may have been the first Anglo-American woman in that town. Um, it was a Mexican town, had been a Mexican town for about 75 years, um, but, uh, and, and was certainly the first Anglo-American woman to give birth there. And she, is, she has a remarkable diary. It is a very poignant and revealing window into the lives of women uh, on the West Texas frontier. Uh, her, some of her um, writings have been published, but there is a diary at the University of Texas at Austin in the archives there, uh, which was um, used to, uh, um, uh, it was an abridge, her, the published version was an abridgment of the diary. Uh, if you read the diary, uh, the original diary, what you find is some of the more interesting parts were left out. Um, that's not to say uh, that she is um, a, an admirable figure as, um, as a result, because she uh, confesses in her diary, I think, uh, many of her own frustrations about um, managing a household of slaves, particularly in her um, 
husband's absence. So the published memoir pre uh, presents a rather somewhat anodyne view of Mary Maverick. But if you look at the, at the diary and the letters uh, that are in the archives, uh, I think you get a fuller picture of who she is. She's still a very sympathetic figure in some ways. She right. loses four children to disease, and she's traumatized by that experience, as anyone would be. Um, but we also need to take into account the fact that she is a slaveholder and has some remarkable things to say uh, about her slaves. The one in particular, as I recall, uh, she uh, confesses surprise that not one of the people who she owns uh, loves her or cares enough to please her. So we're rather shocked by those confessions in her diary. But nonetheless, uh, it is a very good picture of um, the life of women uh, in Texas, in West Texas, uh, in the 1830s and the 1840s. And she really does see this um, region um, change from what is uh, really a battleground between Mexicans and um Comanches, which is what it is pretty much when she arrives in the 1830s. Very violent, anarchic place. It's great to know at least the origins of the word um, maverick. Uh, fi finally, um, Sam, uh, Governor Abbott, of course, of Texas, very much in the news, a prominent figure. He has a certain reading of Texas and Texan history. If he was to read your book, which I don't suppose he would, um, what what do you think very briefly he would learn? What is the lesson that you would like unsettled land to teach a man like Abbott and many of his followers in Texas today? Okay. Um, well, we've already talked about Brian Burroughs' Forget the Alamo and the controversy that it raised. And it might be worth mentioning that um, Brian, uh, I think, and his co-authors were asked to speak at the uh, State Museum, the Bullock Museum, last year and greg abbott uh, rescinded the invitation right i remember that I, that we we talked about that when i talked to brian on the show so, um, so you're not going to get invited sam either i'm sure i i don't know i i would go if they if i if an invitation was offered but you're probably right um but i think the two sides are so polarized now um there there's very little sort of dialogue between the two and i, I let me say that i not trying to forge a, a compromise or being uh, forge a consensus here because I don't think one can be one can be reached. Um, but I do think the point needs to be made that there are multiple narratives with which to understand Texas. So uh, if you want to find examples of martial heroism, which is what Abbott and others traditionalists want to find, uh, then then you will find them. But if you want to uh, tell a story of the subjugation of non-white peoples, then you will find that story too. My problem with the traditional narrative really is that it presents itself as this overarching one-size-fits-all narrative. And we can't simply shoehorn um, the stories of other peoples into, um, that, into that story. Uh, it's very, very complicated. And uh, Texas, as we know, is a region of unremitting violence during this period. And so the stories of people of color, Native Americans, Mexican Americans, uh, people of African descent, those stories uh, need to be told by themselves. Uh, they cannot be incorporated into that traditional narrative, which has become so much a part of the um, 
the, the historical consciousness, not just for Texas conservatives, but for Americans as a whole. Yeah, perhaps this third way, it's appropriate to be coming out of Texas. Sam W. Haynes, author of um, uh, Unsettled Land, congratulations on the new book, which is just out today, The From Revolution to Republic, The Struggle for Texas. So we talked a little bit about Forget the Alamo. Sam, what else are you reading these days in addition to... Um, Forget the Alamo and your new book, Unsettled Land. doesn't have to be about Texas. Anything that's really caught your fancy recently? Well, I've been so busy working with the book. Uh, I haven't had too much time. But uh, Fiona Hill's book, uh, There's Nothing for You Here. Yeah, Fiona was on the show uh, recently, yes. Uh, her. Yeah, it was a, a terrific book. Um, and finally then, Sam W. Haynes, author of Unsettled Land. Sam, in uh, early May 2022, in addition to Governor Abbott of Texas, who runs the world? Who's in charge these days, Sam? Social media, don't they? I mean, I think, uh, I'm, and that's not a good thing, but um, I think the way we now consume um, information in sound bites, and very often the way we consume um, you know, disinformation uh, is, is, is certainly not a good thing, but uh, I think we're, this is the world uh, we find ourselves in, and we're going to have to find some way of, of dealing with of dealing with that. 